The following program contains adult content, violence, and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Welcome to Your Fantasy. And all of a sudden, the sand pops up by us, and we hear this, and we're like, what? We saw this, and then you hear this little, and we realized that someone was shooting at us. And of course, we both thought it was Steve. This is the infamous 1987 calendar. Banerjee was flipped out because he actually created this million-dollar mistake. This, of course, drove Banerjee into a frenzy and caused him to really be looking harder at what Nick was doing because now money was starting to be an issue. He would just sit there mumbling, and he would just say, fuck him. And he'd sit in a way like he wanted to kill him. Just after 3.30 this afternoon, 46-year-old Nick DeNoya, an Emmy Award-winning producer and director, was murdered in his 15th floor office. It almost looked like, like a hit. I screamed and screamed and I howled like a wounded animal at the top of my lungs. Nobody heard me. Nobody could hear me at all. On April 10th, 1987, in North Bergen, New Jersey, Nick DeNoya was buried in a family plot in the Flower Hill Cemetery. It was a cool spring day, and a small group of Nick's family and friends gathered around as his coffin was lowered into the ground. I felt like everything happened pretty quick, like the viewing and the, and the funeral. It just felt like, I know it wasn't one day, but it all felt like one day to me. Al Giuliano worked for Nick for nearly four years, first at Chippendales and then as Nick tried to get his new mail strip show, U.S. Mail, off the ground. Nick wasn't just Al's boss. He was a friend, too. At first, when he heard that Nick had been killed, Al just couldn't accept the reality of it. I guess that's one of the thoughts that passed in my head. Is this real or is this another ploy, you know, for publicity or what's, you know, I, I kept hoping that it was just like a publicity stunt. I hope it's Nick fucking around. It's just some kind of publicity stunt. But when I went up there, it was was real. It was very real. At the funeral, Al talked to a few other people who were also close to Nick. But for most of the day, he just stood off on his own in a daze. Just kind of felt like, I don't know, like riding the wave, just went with what was going on. I was laying on a board in the ocean. Nick's family was absorbed in their grief. And Will Mott, who'd been at the office when Nick was shot, was busy helping the police. Wilmot was in a van, or they said, watching who was going in, pointing out who was who to the detectives. In the days since Nick's murder, the police had come up empty. No good leads on who'd killed Nick and why. So they were there at the funeral, too, hoping the killer might show up. The detectives came and talked to me. They pulled me aside at the funeral. Uh, They asked me a bunch of questions. They said, who do you think did it? I go, it's his partner. He goes, no, no, we already cleared him. He was in a restaurant in L.A. at the time. I go, I'm not saying he pulled the trigger. I'm saying he had it done. They're like, well, we don't, we don't have any evidence. Or we don't have any proof of that. But I'm like, well, you asked me who I thought. Yeah, that was Steve Banerjee. Yeah. Al wasn't the only one convinced Banerjee was behind Nick's murder. I remember two dancers would say, yeah, maybe he wasn't getting along with Steve. And it's funny, when people say the word of somebody they don't like, it always seems to accent it, like, Steve. You know, not like, oh, Steve. Mike Geddes was the lead detective on Nick's case. Picture a New York cop straight out of Central Casting. 
These days, he's got a shock of white hair, really bright blue eyes, rosy cheeks. He's stocky, has a sarcastic sense of humor. He kind of reminded me of Archie Bunker, but in the best possible way. Before he joined the NYPD, he was a bartender in Queens, and he used to do this thing every once in a while to get a laugh from the crowd. And I always had a thing where I would take my shirt off and dance on the bar and, and kid around. So when Chippendales came about, I used to tell everybody, I was Chippendales before there was Chippendales. Oh, my God. That's and we always story. kidded about it. So when the, I got the Chippendales homicide, I was like, wow, you know, this is so... You know, like the universe. Has I, I believe everything's connected. You know, it's not so. super easy to imagine Mike Geddes dancing shirtless on a bar. I mean, this is the kind of language he tosses around when he's feeling especially salty. And I was really, excuse the expression, but pissed. Geddes is retired now, but he talks about Nick's case in this way that makes you think he's had a hard time letting it go, even three decades later. The family needs to have closure. Anytime somebody's killed. Yeah. Because too many people in this country have don't have closure on somebody who was killed in their family. Yeah, and that bugs me to no end. Myself yeah. personally. The funeral didn't turn anything up for Geddes. And no matter how many friends of Nick and employees of Chippendales believed Steve Banerjee was behind it, they couldn't find anything connecting him to the murder. Nothing. Geddes worked the case for a while, but got nowhere. So the case went cold. The wall was you know, hit. Eventually what happens in most homicide cases is you do, you know, those first couple of days are the most important, Yeah. you know? And then you, what happens is you hit the wall, somebody else gets killed. Yeah. You know? Unrelated, just some Unrelated. Other yeah. yeah. So that was it. There was a quick blitz from the press. Strip King shot dead. Emmy winner murdered. And then the world spun on. The investigation petered out. And Steve Banerjee got away with murder. I can imagine an alternate universe where Nick's death and the fact that so many people think Banerjee was involved brings so much attention that it affects the business, forces people to distance themselves from Steve and the brand, smears Chippendale's reputation. But that's not what happens. Instead, the club keeps putting hot guys on stage seven nights a week. The tours continue. The merch keeps moving off the shelves. And most employees, even the ones loyal to Nick, they stick around. Even some of them who left for U.S. mail, they go back to working for Banerjee and Chippendales, like Nick's friend, Al Giuliano. And I didn't want to do it because I felt it was like Banerjee was part of it. And I felt like, if I go back there, is that really just, is that just like slapping Nick in the face? Uh, it was so hard. Like, it was such a hard decision to go back there. I, I didn't want to do it. Like, I really didn't want to do it. But I'm sitting in New York and I'm running out of funds that I had saved up. As for Steve, he can't even bring himself to pretend to be sad about losing his business partner. When Bruce Nahan, the club's lawyer, set up a reward fund to help catch Nick's killer, he told me that Steve wouldn't even give him a nickel. Yeah, the guy did him a favor. That's what he said to you? Yeah. That guy did me a favor. Yeah. Because with Nick out of the picture, Steve's in a position to own Chippendales outright, to get all of the revenue and have total control. Banerjee, uh, he was addicted already at that point to the cash. The brand was a big deal, having the location, control of it and everything. He was carrying around suitcases of cash when he would fly places because, you know, he would get that much cash out of these, these shows and it fed cash into his personal safe at his house. And no matter how many times Nick's friends and colleagues tell the police that it's got to lead back to Steve, nobody has any evidence to pin it on him directly. 
So Nick was killed in 1987, and we all knew it was Banerjee, and nothing was done about it. And, and he was just flourishing, and he was making zillions of dollars, and we're all saying, what the hell? You know, the Nick's murder hasn't been solved. We all know who did it. We can't figure out why nothing has happened. It might have stayed that way forever, but Banerjee gets cocky and careless, and he tries to kill again. It's like, uh... Once an animal tastes blood, they have an addiction to tasting it. He got away with it once. Why would you not think he would use that tool again? I'm Natalia Petrozella. This is Welcome to Your Fantasy, Episode 6, A Tad of Cyanide. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I don't remember very much about the funeral. There were cops there. That's Candace Mayron, the former investment banker Nick hired, who learned of his death when she was on tour with the dancers in Indianapolis. Banerjee wanted to come to the funeral and Val Denoya refused him. Val knew too. And there isn't anybody who didn't know who was behind this. And Val refused Banerjee to come to the funeral. Val is Nick's brother. He was so distraught and so intent on catching the killer that he started calling Geddes every single day to check in on the case. For a while, Val even took over Nick's job, practically daring Banerjee to come after him, too. I was telling Val, you don't need to do this. You don't need another death in the family. He says, no, I want that son of the da 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 to get caught. That's all he was interested in. He figured by exposing himself, something would come out of it where they could identify the killer of his brother. Everyone had their own way of coping. Candace knew she had to keep the tour going. She told me it's what Nick would have wanted. I couldn't wait to get back to the guys. I just, I hated being away from them. I just wanted to get back to yeah. the company. That was some of my brothers and I, and our father had been killed and I just wanted to be with them. Yeah, and you continued the show. The show and we continue, I continued without, without <sighs> even one night dropped. The only people I could commiserate with were Chippendale people. I mean, obviously I informed my family or my family had heard about it. I was getting phone calls from friends and family. Are you in danger, Candace? I said, I'm not in any danger at all. And uh, I knew I wasn't. It was Banerjee hated Nick. He didn't hate me. So I just took over. All of a sudden, Candace's new boss is Val, Nick's brother. She says he couldn't have been more different from Nick. Well, Val was older than Nick, for one. So he was a fuddy-duddy. Soon, Candace and Val begin to clash. Val fired me. He thought that they could do all of this by themselves with this new tour promoter. And one month later, he absconded with all the money and the show was dead and the tour was over and Val accepted Banerjee's offer. Steve Banerjee offered to buy back the tour rights from Val, who agreed. And so the napkin deal that had given Nick ownership of the tour had come full circle. And Banerjee was the one left standing, tour rights in hand. So they kind of questioned everybody and they said, does anybody 
have any reason to believe or any idea of why someone would want to kill Nick. And I kind of stupidly blurted out of my mouth because I don't know how to keep my mouth shut, apparently. Uh, who wouldn't? <laughs> That's Scott Marlowe again. You might remember him from episode three, the guy who left Wall Street behind and ended up pumping a motorcycle on stage. He was dancing at the New York club when Nick was murdered. And immediately the detectives walked over to me and said, what was that? And I said, who wouldn't want to fucking kill him? Wow. You can imagine that they shuttled me off to a private fucking area two minutes after that wanting to discuss with me. But I had a perfect alibi and I had no knowledge of the murder beyond the fact that he was dead. How did the other dancers react when you made that joke? Was it what everybody else wanted to say? <laughs> I think some people smiled and some people were upset. I think some people really liked Nick. I think Michael liked Nick a lot. Danoya and myself uh, never had any problem. Uh, I was oh, a good really? boy. Oh, <laughs> you did what you were told. <laughs> Michael Rapp, Pex as big as Kansas, perfect man, et cetera, et cetera. He saw the same thing Scott Marlowe saw, and he remembers talking to the cops about it too. And they said, uh, so do you know anyone who would want to kill Nick Danoy? I go, yeah, I know several people who want, because he was a power control freak. Back on the West Coast, people like Eric Gilbert, who had a front row seat for the Nick and Steve Wars, had the same suspicions as everybody else. I was in Arizona at the time on a business trip, and uh, this person called and said, did you hear Denoya got shot? And I'm like, wow, where? And he's like in his office in New York. And first thing I said is, it's Banerjee. It has to be Banerjee. And it was weird seeing Banerjee after it happened because um, I was scared, you know, scared of him. But he acted totally calm. Like, he didn't, like, he didn't even refer to it. It was like, you know, something uh, had just been taken off his desk and he doesn't have to look at it anymore. Did you ever think he was capable of murder? No, although I had a feeling, I had never met a real psychopath until then. And um, I started to learn what a psychopath really was. After Nick was killed, he didn't say anything about Nick. And then he came into my office one time like a year later, and he does this like really fake, weird uh, tribute to Nick. Like, and I'm like, is there somebody taping this? I mean, I'm looking around my office, like, I can't believe you're going into this cheap, rehearsed uh, soliloquy tribute. And um, he goes like, oh, I can't believe uh, Nick is gone. I said to him, well, he's, he's been dead a year, Steve. And he's like, oh, I know. I just, you know, can't believe. It's like he was like trying to, play some emotion that I've never, it's so weird because I've never seen him act. Wow. Did he ever send out like a message of condolence? To no, him? he didn't think like that. At times I would really believe, I'd find out some more about Nick being killed and I would really believe it, it was true that Steve did. I think at times I'd convince myself that he didn't do it and uh, keep working for him was like really upsetting me. So anyway, that's why I left eventually. By all accounts, Banerjee's doing fine, better than fine. He's thriving. With the napkin deal null and void, some speculate that he's making about $100,000 per week off the tour alone. Though it seems like no one's really keeping track, so who knows. 
He's got a new show, too, and a new choreographer, Steve Merritt. The show's gotten an 80s upgrade. If Nick was jazz hands, then Merritt is flash dance. His new show is called Welcome to My Fantasy. Tonight, more than 1,000 screaming women did live out their fantasy at Memorial Auditorium. They've seen these guys on all the major talk shows and on one of the biggest selling calendars in the country. What are you doing here tonight? Watching man! <laughs> there was one setback. By the late 80s, Banerjee had spent practically a decade fighting with the fire department in L.A. and the Alcohol Beverage Control Board, the ABC, over a whole slew of repeat violations. In 1988, things finally came to a head. The possibility that the controversial nightclub might be shut down concerned women in line to see the second show tonight, but their reasons were selfish. I think it would be fair if there was too many people in there, but not tonight. (laughs) We drove too far. I would be in the criminal court building for overcrowding cases, of which we had innumerable. I I couldn't even begin to guess how many we had. Ralph Saltzman was one of the many lawyers who represented Banerjee in his fights with the city. Saltzman refused to bring Steve or any of the Chippendale staff to court hearings. I wouldn't take anybody with me. I'd go there by myself. I I wouldn't put him on the stand. My impression at the time was that I I don't think that he would have made a good witness because uh, I think his temper would have taken control over his uh, testimony. The publicity surrounding the fire department's campaign to shut down Chippendales hasn't done the night spot any harm. The fire department's tough talk has been cheaper than buying advertising for the male exotic show. Finally, in late 1988, the ABC had had enough. They revoked Banerjee's liquor license and shut down the club on Overland Avenue. The original Chippendales, the birthplace of Steve Banerjee's male exotic dance show and his dream of being the next Hugh Hefner, gone. Banerjee moves the show to a nearby club called Carlos and Charlie's, where they do the show a couple nights a week. Carlos and Charlie's was just some shitty bar on Sunset Boulevard. We cannot in this city allow our citizens to be put at risk for an economic gain by someone that just absolutely doesn't care. With the L.A. club a shadow of its former self, Banerjee decides to double down on the tour. And in 1990, he approaches a London music agent and promoter, Carl Layton Pope, with a business proposition. Would Pope like to take the Chippendales dancers on tour through Europe? No, no, no. The last thing I was interested in was a a group of guys taking their clothes off. Thing is, Banerjee was right. There was an opportunity there. A friend convinces Layton Pope that it would be legendary to take these American strippers and create a show for European women. It had never been done before, he said. And I said, look, this is what it's going to cost. This is what we want to do, but no clubs. If we can't make this work in the theater, I don't want it. I'm not going to run around doing this bullshit in clubs. Banerjee is in. So Carl gets to work booking Chippendales and Thousand Seat Theaters all over the UK. And the women of Britain, they love it. First appearance in the UK of the Chippendale, sir. Yeah, it's a tremendous show. It's going to be, it's got to be a screaming, baying pack of banshees. That's how it works. Now listen, I am not leaving this bedroom until I get a tip from each of you. So let's start with Kyle. And you scream and shout and um, leave a little deposit on the seat. I do, yeah. No, it was, well, should we chip and dial it this week or should we pay the mortgage? No, okay, chips one. The way Carl tells it, he genuinely cannot believe how well it's going. I'm standing outside the stage door 
And uh, a woman came up to me and said, you're Carl Aiden Pope on your sausage. Yes, I am. She said, I've seen the Chippendales 20 times. And I said, really? And she said, my husband pays for the tickets, but he gets well rewarded when I get home. Brilliant. I thought that was just so brilliant. We couldn't book theatres fast enough, and it was really exploding. Carl tells the story of what comes next, like a general invading Europe. One conquest after another. Boom, boom, boom. Benelux. Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg. So then we took it to France. Made that big arena in Paris. And it all went completely mad. By which time, the Irish had found out about it. So we moved south and we took it to uh, Switzerland, Germany, through Germany, down into Austria. It was going so well, you have no idea. I mean, it was flying. Tell me a little bit more about working with Steve Banerjee. What was your first impression of him? I thought that he was a smart guy. Um, I thought that he'd come up with something quite unique. But the, the paranoia became exhausting. What was that like? Well, it was terrible. It was like daily, constant. Banerjee would be on the phone. What about this? What have you done about that? I thought you were going to get this. What about the numbers for this? Why isn't this? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we? Well, surely we should be. And it was constant questions about why we weren't running head to head with every other kind of Chippendale group that came out of the uh, out of the woodwork. We'll be right back. No matter the success, the money, the thousands of screaming women lined up all over the world, Banerjee's going to Banerjee. And so he becomes obsessed with the competition. He lived with a paranoia of people trying to steal his business. And while he wants to squash them all, there's one group that really gets under his skin. Adonis, the men of Hollywood. They're American, but it's not just that. Adonis was created by a couple of former Chippendales dancers from Banerjee's L.A. club. And in the summer of 1991, while Carl Layton Pope is booking Chippendales in huge theaters all over Europe, Adonis books a run at a theater in Blackpool, a coastal tourist town that's sort of like the Atlantic City of the U.K. Um, so it's that sort of vibrant place. Um, and, of course, the Blackpool Tower, which is sort of a, a slightly smaller version of the Eiffel Tower. Graham Gooch, the detective chief superintendent, presided over Blackpool's many hotel rooms in its knockoff Eiffel Tower in the summer of 1991. He'd left Scotland Yard for Lancashire the year before. He told me that when he took the detective superintendent position, he was looking forward to the idyllic countryside, investigating misbehavior rather than homicides, as he put it. The summer days of 1991 passed without much excitement. His days were filled with cases of disorderly behavior and public drunkenness. And then on July 23rd, around lunchtime, Detective Gooch's office phone rang. And on the other line was the FBI. They said that you've got a problem. There's a hitman coming to um, kill some male dancers. How did you react? Yeah, it's not, it's not the sort of call you get every day, really. And they said, yes, the, the, the group Adonis. And there was some chap coming from America to kill a couple of them. Gooch walked from his office over to the theater and into the tiny dressing room where he found three guys, two American dancers and their Australian manager, hanging out a few hours before that night's show. We walked in to see them and sat them down and said, look, uh, we've got a bit of a problem here, is that um, someone's hired a hitman to uh, come and kill a couple of you. How did that land? Well, I think it spoilt their day a bit. 
The threat of a hitman is a legitimately unnerving thing. But as the details of the murder plot were slowly revealed to Gooch, it goes from scary to, well, the most charitable way I can describe it is completely absurd. He's going to come here and he's going to stab two people, possibly three, with a syringe full of poison. Now, these dancers are pretty big fellows. And uh, so <laughs> they're not going to take it too easily. And you might ask, how was the hitman supposed to successfully inject these three men, three huge men, with a syringe full of cyanide? The person hiring the hitman said, well, you can hit him with a brick or something and knock him down and then inject him. Now, if you do that to one person taken by surprise, but two or three, um, it's not going to be a very easy thing to do. Normally, people won't sit around and let it happen. And then you've got to hope the other one sits down while you're killing one. So I thought it was a bit of a scatterbrain plan from the start. In terms of murder plots, how common is it to use a syringe? Well, I, I, it's very rare in that going, you know, to employ a hitman to go and do that. I mean, one, one, it's very common in fiction, more often than it is in fact. To go and try to do not one, but two or perhaps three murders... Um, going to a country with which you're familiar without any briefing much about where they're going to be alone at any time. It's, uh, it was peculiar and, wasn't, and certainly wasn't very professional. But as far-fetched as this plot is, Gooch still has to take the threat seriously. He assigns a few detectives to shadow the dancers in case anyone with bricks and syringes of cyanide comes for them. Did the men ever just say, we're not going to do this, we're not going on, we want to go home, get us out of here? No, I, I mean, they went on and did the show. I think, I think the old show business thing, the show must go on, and they did. It can't be very nice to know that somebody's actually planning to kill you and somebody's on their way to kill you. Um, but the show went on. The detectives watch over the Adonis men for two days, and they talk theories. Who would be after them? like Dan Peterson after he was shot at at the beach and Nick's friends and family after Nick was murdered, the men of Adonis all agree on one thing. They caught on pretty quickly where it had come from. I think they were sort of a bit incredulous to start with, and then I think they started to put two and two together about who it was because of the trouble they'd have with Steve Banerjee before and having moved away from him. They could see where this was all coming from. A couple of days later, the FBI called Gooch again. They told us that uh, the threat's gone. We, we, we've got the man here. The man had been detained. So that was the end of it, really. But it was nowhere near the end. For the FBI, it was just the beginning. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The guy the FBI had in custody was a small-time crook named Errol Lynn Bressler, who went by the name Strawberry. 
According to the FBI, the guy who hired Strawberry had the touring dates wrong, which meant Strawberry arrived in England early, before the Adonis guys even got there. He waited for them, but when the right time finally arrived, Strawberry didn't go through with it. He bailed on the plan completely. Didn't hit anyone with a brick, didn't inject anyone with cyanide as he'd been instructed to do. Strawberry was out. Which might lead you to ask, who was the guy who hired Strawberry and came up with this harebrained scheme in the first place? Let me introduce you to Ray Colon. Ray is important to the story. He's important to Steve Banerjee's entire life of crime. Way back in the early days, Ray was the guy Steve often went to to get his dirty work done. But Ray is not your typical fixer. In the late 90s, at the suggestion of his therapist, Ray wrote a 900-page screenplay based loosely on the events of his life. The movie, if made, would be 15 hours long. We've confirmed that some of what's in the screenplay is true, and some of it is not. Welcome to Ray's fantasy, if you will. Ray died in 2002 from kidney disease at the age of 58, so we couldn't ask him about any of this directly. But we did talk to his writing partner at the time, Patrick Montes de Oca. I met Ray Colon while I was in an acting school, doing a a scene, a class, and uh, he was interested in bad guys, and I was playing a killer. In the scene, the other actor broke the wall. (laughs) He got scared. Uh, he thought actually I was going to kill him. Ray, uh, he was looking for uh, a reading of a theatrical screenplay that he had done about cops and robbers. And we became uh, more or less affiliated and had a lot in common. Patrick started working on scripts with Ray in the 90s. They met in that acting class and quickly found out they both grew up in Astoria, Queens in the 1950s. That was the contact that we made when we met, that we had, you know, that common denominator. I think you can uh, generalize when uh, most of the kids that grew up in New York in that time, that grew up in the street, they grew up with the mob, they grew up with the idea that mobster is 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 uh, is great, it's flashy, and uh, people fear you, and and they build a, a life around that. But I made choices, good choices, in terms of uh, going to acting. <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of very positive for me to do that, but. People like Ray, you know, the only thing that they, uh, I believe, I suppose, at the time wanted to do was to be accepted by the mob, you know. We never found any actual mob connections. But in his screenplay, Ray writes about his exploits like he's in a Scorsese movie. Ray was funny, charming, but with a current uh, tension underneath all of that, that he could snap any moment, so to speak. So he was, in a way, in a way pretty unpredictable. When he walked into a room, you know, he, 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 was, he was a small guy, but he was very powerful. He carried a lot of power. Like, how would you describe it? He walked into a room and... Threatening power. Threatening, 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 you know, threatening. That you don't, you don't mess with this guy. But he had a real charming, also, quality about him, and that was the side that I saw. Very few people we talked to wanted to talk about knowing Ray Colon. But they all knew of him because Ray had been hanging around Chippendale since the very beginning. He moved to L.A. from New York when he was young to try to make it in the music industry. And the way Patrick tells it, Ray sort of stumbled upon the club back in the days when it was called Destiny 2. Ray had a uh, production company at the time. He had uh, left the uh, studio and gone into the club by accident and uh, walked into this club. They were playing terrible music and 
Ray was sitting in the bar, and, and so uh, Steve came over, introduced himself, and the, the, the club was empty, and he asked uh, Ray what he does. And he said, oh, I, you know, I'm a producer. I'm, I've got a studio down the street here. And he says, oh, maybe you can give me some idea about the club. What do you think I should do? And Ray says, well, the first thing is, you know, throw out the band, fire the band, put some lights on, circulate lights, and, you know, get some disco music going. And that was the beginning of the relationship. Ray and Steve Banerjee become fast friends. Ray's a regular at the club as it transforms from dingy bar to local hotspot. I mean, at that time, we were that close. I mean, he told me things that he, you know, everybody wants to believe that they were his confidant, and it's bullshit. That's Ray in a British documentary from 1998 called Chippendales, A Secret History. There's some disagreement about why Ray did the documentary. According to Patrick, it was all part of this redemption project from the crimes Ray committed on Steve's behalf. But others thought that Ray was, if anything, an opportunist, and that this was just the next thing that came his way. Back when things were better between him and Banerjee, Ray worked briefly as Steve's musical director. Then he left to join the police department in Palm Springs as a reserve officer, which is basically like being a mall cop. On weekends, he'd drive back to LA to visit the club with his cop buddies. Even after Ray left the force, Steve thought Ray's time in uniform was useful cover for the unofficial work that Steve would ask him to set up over the next 12 or so years. By the summer of 1991, Steve couldn't stop talking about Adonis, the other American male exotic dance troupe getting work in the UK. First, Steve tried to stop them legally, demanding that every venue where Chippendales performed had to sign an exclusive agreement. But when that strategy didn't work, Steve put in a call to Ray. He said, this is the son of a bitch I want you to get. You know, this white guy and this other guy, uh, these are the two guys I want. Then he gave me alternate guys, a bunch of alternate guys, about five alternate people. In Ray's recounting, Banerjee instructs him to set up the murders of two men affiliated with Adonis. One's a former Chippendales star, and the other is his manager. Ray takes the job, but he knows better than to do Banerjee's dirty work himself. So he reaches out to a guy he knows who he thinks will be up for it. That's Strawberry. Ray offers him $25,000 a head to go to England and kill the men of Adonis. So according to Ray, Banerjee is at once extremely specific. These are the two guys I need you to get. And laughably vague, like, oh, and if you get around to it, go ahead and murder these other dudes too. Next, they just need to figure out how they're gonna get it done. There's no way Strawberry's gonna be able to smuggle a gun on the flight to England. So Ray has other plans. Yeah, I don't know if you know what gophers are. You know, gophers are like little, uh, they, they kind of look like mice, but they're like chipmunks, you know? And they make these, burrow these big holes in your lawn. I mean, humongous holes and tunnels. And I mean big. According to guys who knew him, Ray was a jokester, always teasing people and looking for a laugh. So I gotta say, it feels a little out of character that he's not leaning more into the absurdity of this murder plot. But I guess by that point in Ray's life, his lawn and the gophers destroying it were no laughing matter. So I had cyanide to kill those little bastards, you know? So then I said, but I'll tell you what, I have some potassium cyanide, maybe we can use that. You know, he says, yeah, you know? So we says, yeah, we can inject them with the cyanide. Just a tad of cyanide is gonna kill you. So Ray sends Strawberry to London with cyanide from his personal stash, hidden in a bottle of Visine. 
Strawberry had often bragged to Ray about running guns between New York and Florida. But he'd also bragged about being a snitch. That one of the ways he'd make money was to set up drug deals and then turn a bunch of those drug dealers over to the DEA. Which, again, makes you question Ray's judgment when it comes to hiring killers. So when things go south in Blackpool, Strawberry doesn't just give up on the hit, and he doesn't reach out to Ray and say, I can't do this. Instead, he reaches out to the feds. And the FBI, they're on it. They talk to Strawberry at their Las Vegas field office, and they put a plan in place. Strawberry's going to get Ray on tape discussing the hit. As far as Ray knows, Strawberry's still in London, calling to walk through the details of the plan just one more time. There was a phone call intercepted by the FBI where the person hiring the hitman said, well, you can hit him with a brick or something and knock him down and then inject him. The FBI searches Ray's house three days later. They find 46 grams of cyanide in his garage, in a canvas bag with a hand-drawn skull and crossbones and the words, do not open. It was enough to kill over 230 people. And probably a shitload of gophers, too. I don't know. We called three different exterminators to ask, but they all just laughed. Ray is arrested and charged with murder for hire. He pleads not guilty and is held in a Los Angeles detention center without bail. His court-appointed attorney tells him he could be looking at a sentence of 35 years. Ray sits in prison for seven months, worrying about the increasing pain in his kidneys and the little time he has left. So here's what happened. This is Ray's friend, Patrick, again. Ray, he was pretty much by himself when he realized the complications or the implications of of his crime and uh, that he would be valuable, a valuable asset, if he uh, was uh, to turn Steve in. But Ray stews for a while. And then, and by the way, this is the scene that Ray describes in a zillion-page screenplay. He runs into an old mobster in the yard, a guy named Rocky. And so Rocky walks over to him. Hey, how you doing, buddy? How are you? Hey, I hear you uh, had some trouble here, you know? He hugs him and kisses him, and he says, I hear what you're doing with this guy, Steve, and you're taking it for him on the chin. He says, why are you doing that? So screw him. Give him up. I'm telling you. I'm ordering you. Give him up. In reality, Ray eventually gets a lawyer, and that lawyer helps him flip. Every time Ray appears on screen in that documentary, his face is blurred out. He sounds resigned, like he's got no moves left to make at all. He's a guy with a complicated relationship to his own past. Definitely not the only man in Chippendale's history to fit that description. This interview he gave was 1998, seven years after the attempted UK hit, and four years before he died. And when I listen to Ray speak, what I hear in his voice, more than anything else, is just relief. What Strawberry did was the right thing. And, I, and, and I'm, I mean, thinking about it now, I'm glad he did what he did. As far as him turning me in, in a way I was relieved. It was over, you know, because I, I think at some point I would have had to kill Steve or he would have had to kill me. It would have never ended, you know. Next time. We did the Geraldo show, which was my attempt 
to spur the FBI into getting a move on. Some of the most sexy strippers on this planet. But that is not the entire Chippendale story. And today, more scandal than you could ever imagine. Wait, did you tell Geraldo behind the scenes that you thought it was Banerjee? We said it on the air. If you think about the whole range of murders, many murders are heat of passion murders. And a murder for hire is a cold, calculated, premeditated crime. Was this a kind of hot case? It's Chippendales, babe. We're still talking about it 40 years later. Welcome to Your Fantasy is a production of Pineapple Street Studios in association with Gimlet. It's hosted by me, Natalia Petrozella. Our senior producer is Eleanor Kagan. Our producer is Christine Driscoll, and our associate producer is Erin Kelly. Nicole Hemmer and Neil J. Young are consulting producers. Our editors are Joel Lovell and Maddie Spronkheiser. It was mixed by Hannes Brown and fact-checked by Ben Phelan. This show features original music by Dow and Anthony, and thanks to our music supervisor, Jasmine Flott. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. From Gimlet, our executive producer is Lydia Polgreen, and our editor is Colin Campbell. We've got a Spotify playlist with tons of music from the original show, so you can create the club experience for yourself in the comfort of your own home. You can find the link in the show notes. For clips from Chippendale's British takeover and behind-the-scenes footage of Steve Banerjee directing a calendar shoot in Tahiti, check out our Instagram account, Chippendale's Revealed. That's the handle, Chippendale's Revealed. Did you ever go to Chippendale's? We want to hear about it. Leave us a short voicemail, 30 seconds to a minute tops, at 323-475-9424. And we might play it on a future episode. That's 323-475-9424. This is a Spotify original podcast.